If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out this July from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Hey, Darren, have you been watching us on uh, the Electric Now app? I have. I haven't recently because I, I, I watch you pretty much every week when we're doing these things. But Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's, you know what I love about it's, the Electric Now app? It's better it's on so video. It's so easy to use. It's, it's, it's better really on video. Easy. Download the it. app and you watch us. That's all there is to it. It's so and, simple. And a lot of other cool stuff, too. You go to the app store. It says Electric Now. You download it. And then... You in press, the United States, press the button, and there it is. There it is, and you can choose. You can bookmark it. There's plenty of other movies and TV show to enjoy, and episodes of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts. So why wait? Download the Electric Now app and start enjoying us anytime. If you're a fan of Inglorious Trexperts, you're gonna love Trexperts Briefing Room, a Trexperts new series. Briefing Room. What is that? I was about to explain, then you interrupted oh, me. I it sorry. Is, it's curated audio commentaries of classic Star Trek episodes from the original series all the way through Enterprise. You're going to love it as we explore the behind the scenes making of all these wonderful Star Trek episodes with cast and crew that you would never expect to hear doing audio commentaries on Star Trek. Sounds like fun. It will be. And you <laughs> can find it on the Inglorious Trexperts podcast feed and on the new Trexperts briefing podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's go see. What's out there? If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And welcome back to part two of our look at the search for Spock. My father says that you have been my friend. You came back for me. You would have done the same for me. Why would you do this? Because the needs of the one outweighed the needs of the many. I have been and ever shall be 
Your friend. Yes. Yes, Buck. The ship. Out of danger, you saved the ship. You saved us all. Don't you remember? Jim. Your name is Jim. Yes. This is our deep dive into the notes from both the studio and Gene Roddenberry on Harv Bennett's script for Star Trek III. Some of you called it a masterpiece. It's a tension-filled conclusion to our wonderful two-parter episode. And uh, it was it's so big that one episode could not contain it. Yeah. So we're going to resume uh, with some insights from both the studio and Gene Roddenberry as they, uh, as they uh, point out the, the deficiencies uh, of uh, Harv's script. And hopefully uh, you'll look at it and realize the Star Trek that could have been. Of course, this is a, a typical... Uh, process which uh, every film goes through with both the studio and the producers uh, giving notes some which get taken some which don't and uh, this is a look inside the factory and how the sausage is made we hope you'll enjoy it it's fascinating to the extent uh, to which these notes go completely unheeded yeah that's for sure and we're joined uh, once again by uh, Ashley Edward Miller Ashley of course is uh, taking his fair share of notes as well as the showrunner of Dota Dragon's Blood and uh, writer of such films as X-Men First Class and um, also Thor. So uh, now let's rejoin part two as we continue our search for Spock. So we have that then on June 8th, 1983, June 8th, Gary Nardino, who used to run the TV uh, division and now is the executive producer on Star Trek Three, sends the studio notes under a cover that says, please take a look at these attached notes, which are a compilation of our group's thoughts on your marvelous screenplay. And let us know your agreements or disagreements. Thank you, Gary. Darren, you know, can when, you do a Gary Nardino? I, uh, I haven't, I haven't, refi- I haven't sh- uh, uh, workshopped my Gary Nardino voice. So wow. <laughs> well, let <laughs> me tell you, these up. I, uh, I, uh, I actually knew Gary and interviewed him because he for, um, was partners with Harv Bennett on time tracks. For the old prime time entertainment network. Right. And uh, I remember he was, uh, he sounds exactly like how you would expect him to sound. And uh, here, here are the Following. studio notes. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely is that uh, in general, we feel that Hoff has written a terrific second draft, which addresses and incorporates most of Paramount's <laughs> notes and has effectively strengthened previous areas of concern. Hoff's <laughs> genuine. Genuine affection for Star Trek characters and their mythology is evident on every page, and this affection expresses itself through real humor, touching emotional moments, and a complete involvement with the story as it emerges generically from the distinct characters. Indeed, it's virtually impossible not to get a warm and uplifting feeling from reading the script. What's needed now is simply a polish which fleshes out some of the story and character motivation while providing additional connective tissue between the key emotional moments, the characters, and the groundwork of the story as a whole. And so, who knows? Uh, in a few drafts, maybe they'll want a piece of our action. So, <laughs> so basically, we're talking to Barzini from uh, Godfather. 
<laughs> he, you know, he totally, you know, had the whole Brooklyn thing, uh, New York, New York thing going. Um, but you know, it's interesting because now that they've told Harvard of geniuses and how little work the script means, yeah. means they then proceed to tear it apart. Yeah. Now, now uh, they now they bring in the termites to the welcome uh, house. to Hollywood, <laughs> and 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 the highlight reel with Kirk would like Kirk to experience a greater sense of jeopardy and urgency. This can be done by having Morrow offer him a much desired promotion, which makes his decision to return to Genesis carry even more severe repercussions and making Kirk aware of the perils that David and Savick are in. So the tension and urgency of Kirk's need to return to Genesis are heightened to which Carr writes. No, 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 no. <laughs> Maximize on his new role as renegade and allow the emotional stress of the situation to take its toll on him, providing him with the opportunity to behave in some uncharacteristic type modes, like tricking Kruge into death, to which Harv writes, yes. Um, I will say uh, that note's not nuts. Yeah. No, the, I, I think these notes I are think good. It's a good note. It's like, hey, man, welcome back. Congratulations. You did a great sh- fucking job. Thank you for killing Khan's ass. Um, you know, and we're going to give you another star and we're going to give you a better desk. Right. And everything is cool. And oh, by the way, like, yeah, don't worry about the Genesis planet. Your kids there. You know, and it's it's really interesting because when they describe Kruge, it's clear they hadn't thought of casting Christopher Lloyd yet Mm -hmm. because they say his character and motivation still remains murky and somewhat inconsistent. Perhaps could suggest that he and Valkyrie were romantically involved, thus adding intrigue to her backstory. Need to clarify what precisely he's looking for by traveling the Genesis to which Harv writes too complex which is unfortunate <laughs> because that's exactly what the the, the, the script needed perhaps mm-hmm. valkris inadvertently passed on inaccurate information and now kruge falsely believes that david carries the secret of the genesis torpedo when kruge learns that no single man can create this incredible weapon he becomes enraged kruge's cruel and senseless murder of david would carry an even sharper edge if he was trying to torment kirk knowing the blood relation from Valkyrie's information and two getting even for his deception and the waste of his time. This would also lend to a greater dramatic urgency to David and Kruge's meeting while allowing the audience to see David in more direct jeopardy. Again, I hate to say it because he's from the goddamn studio, but that's a good note. Yeah, it's a good note. It's a much more interesting and Klingon character than sort of the goofball version that they did in Star Trek three with Christopher Lloyd. Mark, did you your know, the, camera get did your camera get twisted? Because we can't see you. Can't see me. I I can see you. You can't see he's, me. Um, he's hiding behind <laughs> the moon. If that, wow. If, uh, we were to go by the book. There you are. Would seem like oh, oh. there's there's Mark. I just beamed I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> I just beamed in. Boy, am I on time. I, I parachuted. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good line. Uh I know it's Shatner's line. Uh, okay. Um, David, now this is going to be interesting because, of course, we all have problems with this uh, character of David. Uh, the studio says would like to see his bloodlines to Kirk be more evident. He remains a weak and undynamic character who doesn't quite manage to take charge of a situation emotionally or intellectually. Would like to see more heat in his relationship with Savic. Oh, and yeah. would like to see them interact as adults. Also need to, instead of, you know, they're written like teenagers. Yeah. Also need to establish him as an authority on, authority on Genesis and other scientific matters. Yeah. Additionally, need to show that David is one of the major factors predicating Kirk's return to Genesis. Further, audience needs to know the hows and whys of his appointment to the exploration team. Perhaps Kirk encouraged him to return to the space lab with his mother, but David refused, etc. Finally, need to really milk his death. 
his loss should carry a comparable emotional wallop to the death of Spock in Star Trek Two. It absolutely right. Yep. It really absolutely makes me right mad on that the all studio counts. is this right so far. Yep. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yep. Absolutely. Here we are with Savic. Although Savic's character has been greatly strengthened, would like to see more of her cool sexuality and hot excitement for David. <laughs> Harv writes, no. Her maternal, <laughs> her maternal nurturing of Spock is great, but would like to see her express her sexuality or at least her feminine charms to David. Also need to establish why and how she was appointed to the explor- exploration team with David. So and he writes, took- oh yeah, sorry. He writes, N-A, N-A? Not, a, not applicable. <laughs> If you yeah. were to take this note and average it with Gene's note, yeah, you'd have the right note, which is probably like where it, it needs to be. How do you mix, how do you mix cool sexuality and hot excitement? Right? Well, you have to take David out of the equation. Well, and here's the note I was alluding to regarding Ohura. Yeah. Where the, the studio says, don't leave her behind. Take her to Genesis. Film could use a few active feminine female characters. They call them characters. Right. And which Uhura, I was check off. And Ahura is a beloved regular. Yeah. Now, and that, now that's a question a lot of people ask because you, I think you right. mentioned it earlier. Uh, whatever happened to BB Besh? So they, yeah. the Carol Marcus, they bring up need to reveal what she's doing now. Harv says, no. Wouldn't there be some mention of her by David or by Kirk upon their son's death? Mm-hmm. No. No. Okay. Now, now on Genesis, the studio said, would like to see Esteban inform Starfleet Command that Genesis is disintegrating due to proto-matter in the Matrix. No. There's a distinct possibility that Spock still exists. No. That he left Savik and David behind and what happened to Carol Marcus as well. Perhaps Morrow lets the information communicated by Grissom slip out, or perhaps Kirk is informed immediately about these discoveries due to his status as Admiral. No. No. And, you know, the the fact of the matter is, even if they had filmed all that, it all would have been cut out. That's exactly right. And Harv is not wrong to oppose it. No, I completely agree. Uh, Connective tissue. And this is the last note um, from the team. Uh, Connective tissue. In order to maximize upon the dramatic tension, there needs to be more connective tissue between various characters and predicaments, as well as the key dramatic moments. For instance, Kirk would return the Genesis for Spock, David, and Savick. He would be clear on this mission from the top, particularly since he's jeopardizing a hot new promotion, and the ticking time bomb of Genesis would propel him onward with greater urgency. Might want to insert dialogue, read disagreement over David's future between Carol, Kirk, and David, etc. Another example comes in the bit with Valkyrie. Her presence and impact can be used to their fullest potential by showing that she's passed on inaccurate or at least incomplete information to Kruge. He can curse her out later and be frustrated by her incompetence, taking out his frustrations on poor defenseless, defenseless David. Um, specific page notes to follow. That's a great summation of what those notes are. And I think largely correct. And Hart's yeah. response is, Why? And all this would slow us down, down. except he's so wrong about that, because by creating that, by by creating those connections, creating that clarity, suddenly the movie is dramatizing a lot of things it's otherwise talking about or we're just not following. We have to stop and think about he's track. The tracks would be greased. That's right. These notes are about what you need, my friend, are stakes and a goddamn ticking clock. (laughs) You know, perhaps that would help. Yes, actually, it would, Harv. Now, we're not going to read the studio notes, but I do have to say on page 30, their note is invite Scotty to the party. 
To which Hart Bennett responds, no. Nope. No, no one invites Scotty to the party. <laughs> no <we. laughs> I mean, there's, a, it, it, there's definitely, they, they're, they're definitely hung up on the David and Savic stuff because here on 51, they say change interchange between David and Savic. Just because David's a scientist doesn't mean he's a wimp. That's true. Furthermore, as a scientist and a leading man, he needs to be more confident and competent. Mm-hmm. Mitigate the hostilities between Savic and David. Omit Savic blaming him for the child. Need to define their relationship. Are they lovers? Would be lovers. Strictly working associates. And that's not wrong either, because the, the conflict between them always felt a little Dickerson's as opposed mm-hmm. to like conflict over what the hell was going on. I mean, look, and there was a built in conflict. David has a secret to protect. Right. And also the frustration of impending failure that should be, you know, getting into his head and informing all the decisions that he's making. Well, Savick at that point should be thinking, OK, but look at what's happening. And that isn't really where the conflict is coming from. They're more having policy debates and it's frustrating. It's time for total truth between us. This planet is not what you intended or hoped for, is it? Not exactly. Why? I used protomatter in the Genesis matrix. Protomatter? An unstable substance which every ethical scientist in the galaxy has denounced as dangerously unpredictable. But it was the only way to solve certain problems. So, like your father, you changed the rules. If I hadn't, it might have been years or never. How many have paid the price for your impatience? How many have died? How much damage have you done? And what is yet to come? I like the note from page 52. Uh, they're, correct, they're correcting the statement that Kirk should say, nutty is a fruitcake, not fruity is a nutcake. Or is this a gag? And Hart Bennett says, it's, it's a gag. <laughs> Well, I, again, I pointing out the fact that I don't think Christopher Lloyd was in the mix yet on 66, 67. They say, like the business with the steak. This is where he strangles the steak. And right. he says, would like some of Kruger's animal magnetism to be oh, communicated Christ. with Valkyris, as noted above. Make more <laughs> of Savic's acknowledgement that the child is Spock. This is an important discovery, which needs more dramatic punch. Yep. Also make sure that David and Savic's relationship is well-defined and consistent. Mm-hmm. And the reaction is explore. explore. Yeah. Yeah. And I they're very hung up on a lot of the stuff that didn't work. Um, these, you know, crude, these are authors of Genesis. They oh, this is this is great because they say um the enterprises then wrote to Genesis to heighten suspense and tension of the Kirk and company need to know that David and Savik are in peril and that the planet is ripping itself apart, either or or both. This later fact could be conveyed via communication from Carol Marcus. What did happen to her anyway? Harv's note, forget it. <laughs> right? I don't know what he had against BB Besh because, boy, every time they bring up uh, Carol Marcus, he is yeah. adamant that they are not going to use her for anything. And you don't even have to have that big a scene. It's very simple. It's Carol Marcus saying, Jim, right? It's like that planet, like it, I figured out that we use fucking protomatter and yeah. it's not going to be stable. It's going to tear itself apart. And David is there, right? It's just, okay. 
cool. You know, whatever you you need to do with that, but it but it at least kind of adds that sense that we're moving towards something rather than we're on the boat now. And yeah, the boat's going fast, but that doesn't convey any tension that that carries us into story. Yeah. Yeah. So there are a lot more studio notes, specifically line notes and dialogue notes. Um, and, you know, on 106, they do say David's death is still largely underplayed. Well, that would be remedied in the performance as it was in the first draft. At the very least, Kirk could make mention of how fitting it is that David's final resting place be on a planet that he created and that the two of them are dying together or something of that nature. Yeah. Um, so, OK, really good studio notes. And, and there are a lot more that we're not going to read, but um, uh, very interesting. And then, of course, the final draft is published on July 28th, 1983. And Gene is back with a vengeance um, in his memo of August 1st. 1983. And uh, Gene, if you just would summarize the top of your memo where you sort of set the set the tone for the notes that are to come. It's a lot less, I think, uh, political and indulgent and respectful than the previous memo. Clearly, uh, a lot of your changes haven't been made. Um, and you are very concerned that without changes, this is a very problematic movie. I'm going to uh, read the third paragraph here. Uh, it sort of starts to get into the meat of things. And uh, I say, well, if you would, I'd love it if you read the first paragraph as well. All right. If shot without revisions, this draft would create some fairly serious problems for me. And in my opinion, also for Paramount as regards the continuing viability of the Star Trek property. The problems I see have mainly to do with script items contrary to what has been established and proven successful in the Trek format. Now, this is uh, two weeks before principal photography. Yeah. And um, these are notes uh, that were mentioned in the June 3rd memo and at a subsequent meeting with Leonard Nimoy and Harv. And um, now Gene is about to go on the attack. A short digression now to something which may be of value. While puzzling over format questions in this draft, I realized that no single one of my comments concerned an item absolutely necessary to the Star Trek format. Yet the sum of these items were clearly very important. With that, I finally began to understand a bit more about why people have had so many difficulties with the Trek format over the years. Most TV shows have had a format which is pretty much the sum of the main characters their location and situation, plus the kind of drama or comedy intended. The character of Star Trek, however, resulted in a format which extends beyond just those elements, a fact which may explain its unusual effect on some audiences. Its format includes the main characters, the starship and space adventure, but these are only the more visible parts of a mosaic kind of format which includes many other things, both large and small. Formats of this type are somewhat analogous to feather mosaic, which makes the bird capable of flight. While the important large quill feathers are necessary, as with a drama's main character. The great bird is taking his place, moniker a little too seriously. Uh, as with a drama's main characters and place and situation. There is also a network of smaller feathers, which are equally necessary, even though no single one of them is vital to flight. Plucking a handful of these. And then we're missing a page, but I think we know. Oh, okay. um, I the think we know. I think we know what he's saying that, you know, you can pluck one or two of the feathers 
and it can still fly. But if you plug too many of them, yeah, we're missing page two. Yeah, the page mysterious two. page two that obviously code has two. The, they broke code the, two. The secrets of the universe on it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I, so Jane is is not mincing words in this uh, in in this latest memo. And if you look on page three, he talks about the um, the Enterprise and why he doesn't like the way it's being depicted. The obsolete Enterprise dialogue should be replaced too. It is scientifically implausible that a 23rd century space vessel becomes obsolete in just 20 years, like something from 1950 Detroit, which constantly needs adornment with new tail fins and bumpers. Again, there is a better way to accomplish what is wanted. The script need only note that the continuing rivalry between our Federation and the Klingons and Romulans has made it necessary to equip Starfleet with more powerful vessels, with more powerful defenses and weaponry. With this, a new starship design might become believably necessary. Otherwise, it verges on the ridiculous to say that a starship capable of hundreds of times the speed of light and possessing the knockout punch we've seen demonstrated is ready for the scrap heap. Instead, going this direction permits the more believable assertion that Kirk's old friend, actually his primary love, if we can believe earlier scripts, has been slated to go into retirement as a science vessel or something like that. I, I really like uh, here what he, he does to try and protect Scotty. He talks about how revisions are needed, particularly in the case of Scotty, uh, to make it more believable um, that he would look down his nose at the new queen of space, the Excelsior, and attempting to laugh it off as too gadgety. Although fiercely loyal to the old queen, he's having great difficulties convincing even himself that the new one isn't something special. Later, he manages to sabotage the super starship, but succeeds only because he's an incredibly proficient engineer. This has the additional advantage of keeping Kirk Starfleet from looking plain dumb and accepting a vessel can be stopped cold by a single missing chip, which could come off as unbelievable, even laughable in the first place. When Clearly, are we going to stop? Clearly, he never drove a Tesla. Anyway, go ahead. Well, he goes, <laughs> he goes, when are we going to stop portraying Kirk's beloved Starfleet as a Pirates of Penzance Admiralty? It flies directly in the face of optimistic future. One of the format's most powerful elements, according to every study and poll made of Star Trek. That is a lesson that is not only applicable to Star Trek three, but I think to the franchise as a whole. And it would be wise for people to keep it in mind who, whenever they're working on Star Trek. That said, how many times did Kirk have to deal with a crazy Admiral? But that's not what he's saying. He's, he's okay. talking about, that you know stupid stuff and and you mm. keep things credible and he's saying optimistic he's saying you know it is so important that it be the future be optimistic and how important that is it's in the dna of star trek mm. um and i and think that is right i think that's very true um he's very hung up on the klingon vessel's wings but more importantly he's back a little more aggressively attacking Vulcan immortality. And I think here he, he states his case even more potently. In my comments on the previous draft, it was pointed out that any claim that Vulcans are immortal would be hard for even the most devoted Trekkies to swallow. It completely unbelievable that Earth and Earth scientists with close affiliations with Vulcan would not be aware of this or that Starfleet with 
Vulcans among its personnel wouldn't know this, or that Kirk, who is a blood brother of Spock, would have had no hint of this. My recommendation was that instead of immortality, a tradition exists that, if possible, the consciousness of a Vulcan is delivered through mind meld to his family so that they can share this essence of that family member and carry it with them always. I believe you have accepted that suggestion, for which I am grateful, but it is difficult to understand in their reading of this final draft whether the story is really going this way or not. If this is the intention, strongly recommend that this be made more clear. As presently written, Planet Vulcan and Spock will seem to slide from science fiction into fantasy. Also, must Sarek come off so much an ass in presuming that Spock's death had to have occurred in a way that would have given Kirk time to do whatever he should have done? And then he goes on and he talks about having a mindless Spock um, going back to Vulcan should be treated as something completely different from the traditional return of a consciousness to a family. Here they're returning a body too. I can't imagine that there have been many planet Genesis effects around before, certainly even fewer of them involving a Vulcan. And this can hardly avoid being a very, very special thing. But the feeling one gets from the script now is, hey, here's another Genesis effect victim and his mindless body. So let's climb to the temple on old Mount Watson again. <laughs> now, what is Harv's note? I can't quite make it out. Uniqueness. Uniqueness, yeah. And then, and then, and then uh, Gene culminates uh, with this, uh, which I love. Uh, Gene? Stay with me, please, friend. Why haven't Kirk or Starfleet or others heard of the tradition that Vulcan's consciousness be returned to his family? I have a little trouble with an answer for that one, but I don't mind the lack of that answer nearly as much as I minded the storyline that Vulcans are immortal without anyone noticing. Now, Perhaps Spock should have told Kirk of the mind meld consciousness to family tradition, but had not wanted to impose on the friendship. Or perhaps Vulcans have never before wanted their consciousness carried around in the mind of another life form, until Spock realized at the last moment of life that these humans were a, as close to him as anyone could be. Even a lame suggestion is more acceptable than the immortality thing. And then, and, and, you know, as he did in the previous notes, He's very concerned about the Cecil B. DeMille of it all. And he, he explains that his principal concern with the scenes as presently written lies in what the audience and the critics may make of Leonard Nimoy directing Leonard Nimoy's co-creation in scenes that read at least like a DeMille creation. No cruelty intended, as I'm sure Leonard knows from the honest give and take during a long association, nor is any meant to you on your conception and writing by my calling something as I see it, Harv. We're all pros, and I mean that in a nice way, which is basically him saying, fuck you. It has been argued that we did essentially the same scene in TV's Amok Time, to some extent true, but with significant format differences. One is that fact that the television episode clearly stated that Spock's special ceremonial treatment in that story was due to the prominence of his father and that Vulcan ancestral line. Another is that the use of the temple was related to the inception of Pond Far in Vulcan's distant past. It was kept clear even then that Spock is half human as well as Vulcan, and it was only with great difficulty that some proud Vulcans have been able to accept the mixture. It has always been amusing how the Vulcans talk the joys of diversity much better than they practice it. Now, that's interesting because that 
in a way presages the way that Enterprise would depict the Vulcans. Yeah. Now, he says, I think very, very uh, poignantly, uh, Gene, tell us in the present story what your big concern is here. Well, in the present story, however, we are suddenly aware that Spock has now become a heroic celebrity to other Vulcans. Why? How did this happen? Will bright members of our audience and some critics ask whether someone has confused the 20th century popularity of a fictional TV Spock with the real Spock one hopes to see in our film? What I love about this note is how seriously Gene is taking Star Trek. Yeah. He, you know, he, he's looking at canon as a real breathing and important aspect of what makes Star Trek special. And he's not dismissing it. He's not saying, well, uh, just to make it dramatic, we'll just make it dramatic. He's saying, why would Spock be so important on Vulcan? You know, when he's a half-breed, he's someone that they look down on. All of a sudden now he's a hero. Yeah, what's the deal? Have they been watching all the episodes <laughs> on yeah, Vulcan? Exactly, exactly, exactly. So this is really interesting. He goes on to talk about how he doesn't like the depiction of, uh, you know, Vulcan, which isn't very futuristic, but rather very uh, primitive. And, you know, how can we avoid the feeling that Vulcan has become something like ancient Luxor? Good point, you know, because he's saying that these these ancient sites are more ceremonial and related to the distant past. But that's not, you know, all of, of Vulcans. Um, but this is clearly something because he goes on for two or three pages about this. That is very much a concern, the Vulcan temple. And uh, he, he it culminates with a, a him really entreating and pleading with Harv not to let religion become a big part of the story. He says, please, this next one is of some personal importance to me. During all these years, I have successfully avoided religion intruding into Star Trek, yours or mine, including a couple people with open wallets who wanted to make use of the fan phenomenon. Please delete Kirk's references to soul. It isn't necessary, and I cannot accept it in a script. Fascinating. Yeah, but not as fascinating as this next line. Which may, yeah. which by the way, was meant completely in the spirit of being professional, and um, it's a completely professional like uh, note, one hundred percent. It's not the kind of note that like gets you punched in the face. Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's funny because we, as as we said throughout this this episode, are are not fans of of the David Marcus character, mm -mm. and clearly clearly Gene is not either. This is hysterical. So why don't you tell us what you had to say, Gene? This is a note on David. He constitutes the best argument for abortion I've seen in some time. His characterization is also the kind of anti-science statement that is guaranteed to annoy some of the most articulate members of our audience. And I realize that this is unintentional, but it does appear to perpetuate the old Pulp Fiction stereotype of scientists tending to be somewhat odd and never quite like the rest of us common sense folks, specifically yeah. on this Beginning with page 28, Savick continues being troubled by strange Genesis effect things, which she points out to David. But what is the attitude and response of scientist David, who supposedly invented the Genesis effect? Instead of being interested and quick-witted about Genesis observations, David keeps shrugging and saying, later. And he keeps on and keeps on saying that long after all the six-year-olds had become worried, too. Is he an alert young genius trained in science disciplines or isn't he? Yeah, so that's a big concern for Gene. And it's, uh, it's obviously, um, 
it's obviously something that that troubles a lot of us in the in the depiction of the character. Uh, other concerns he had are um, dialogue. Can we please eliminate Kirk's comment about Starfleet being up to its brass in galactic politics? Absent friends. Admiral, what's going to happen to the Enterprise? She's to be decommissioned. Will we get another ship? I can't get an answer. Starfleet is up to its brass and galactic conference. No one has time for those who only stand and wait. Sir, about Dr. McCoy, how is he? Oh, that's the good news. He's home, resting comfortably. Pump full of tranquilizers. They say it's exhaustion. He promised me he'd stay put. Well, we'll see. A nice word, a play on words. But can we avoid politics being something that is still around here and elsewhere? If Starfleet is caught in some, well, because clearly their listeners have been glorious experts and they don't like them talking about politics. That's right. Here and elsewhere, if Starfleet is caught in some kind of Federation disagreement, why not an honest struggle over different opinions from different life forms on different planets rather than settling for the pessimism of politics being still alive in the 23rd century? It's easy to be um, a saint in paradise. Sorry, that's easy. a deep space, not in Phantom talking. It's easy to be right. a saint in paradise, exactly. Um, and, and then he wraps up uh, the memo uh, with a few, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, a few last um, pleas to, to, to um, Harv. Instead of McCoy being apprehended by Federation security police, which smells of 20th century CIA and et cetera, can't we again be a little more optimistic here too? All this requires is an earlier indication that McCoy's Starfleet Medical Division is concerned about their doctor's condition. Later, the man can be, surprise, a member of Starfleet's medical staff who is reflecting the concern of that organization for one of its more famous people. McCoy's detention can be medical in nature without really changing the action at all. Why risk scenes which can give Star Trek's audience negative feelings against Starfleet and Earth government and etc. 23rd century bureaucracy can still be sometimes ponderous and sometimes unfair and sometimes even force our people into shortcuts as in this story. But I see no reason for us to infect it with some of the worst things in our own era. Not only Boring. will humanity never make it to the 23rd century carrying that load, every study of our format has called its optimistic future one of its principal attractions. And yet, what a boring note. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's signed Gene Roddenberry. It's CC'd, which is carbon copied, which means it's a copy is also sent to Gary Nardino, the executive producer. And perhaps most interestingly, handwritten at the bottom of the memo. Yeah. Blind is, carbon copy. Yeah, BCC, which means Harv doesn't know it is being sent to this person because it's BCC'd uh, is except, to L. Nimoy. Except, 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 didn't. Isn't this Harv's draft? Isn't this what he was writing on? So did he pass it to Leonard? Is that what he's saying? I think that's oh, what's going on. That's here. probably what's going on. Yep. Because yeah. this is yeah. Harv's draft because it has uh, Harv's notes on it. So it had to be. Yeah. So someone copied it to probably Harv copied it to Leonard. Yeah. So. What a fascinating, fascinating dive into this. It's uh, it's it's very interesting to see some of the same notes being given by the studio and Gene and both being ignored. Yep. And, and, and you know, partially some of that is time and some of that is ego. Um, but, you know, the one thing that's clear from this is there there 
was a better movie that could have been made from this material uh, had some of these notes been heated. Although it occurs to me, looking at a couple of things occurred to me looking at the notes, that number one, Gene would not have been able to make the fixes necessary. Um, he would have attacked things symptomatically rather than looking at them holistically. And that's pretty clear from kind of how the notes rolled out, right? Like he never did the math on what connected everything. Um, and I, I think ultimately you still would have had a movie that was a mess and it would also have been somehow more boring. Um, and I, I think that Gene probably would have agreed with a lot of the prescriptions from the studio, but the studio notes are actually really good um, and it, for the most part and, and generally kind of get at holistically what's wrong with this script. And I, and I think we're good notes in the sense that they also put it on the writer and the director to figure out how to execute um, those changes, right? So I, I think, you know, my, first of all, I think Gary Nardino sounds like a great executive, like exactly the kind of person that you want to work for, which brings well, me to the- those notes aren't really from Gary. Those, sure, those but whoever- Whoever is sitting in the team, sure. But whoever is sitting and doing that, that team. to me feels the team, the teamwork, right? Yeah, but you know, you know what's really interesting, Ashley. You know who one of the people on the team was? Markovitz. That's uh, Ovitz, wow. Uh, Michael, Ovitz. Michael Ovitz's Michael brother. Ovitz. Okay. Yeah, and Susan Zachary. Oh, Cybok. Um, you never told me you had a brother. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think I, I think Susan Zachary was the executive on this. And, and most of those notes were probably coming. From but her. either way, studio, I think, was was doing its job and doing it well. I wish Harvard listened to them. Um, the other thing that occurs to me is that there are a lot of things in those notes that make me understand why they wanted to lock Uncle Gene in the fucking attic and not let him out because they're obnoxious. Those notes are just obnoxious and they're not super helpful. Even when they're right, they're not super helpful. Um, it's just, okay, I mean, gonna, when you're, when your note is, oh, by the way, Hey friend, I like, I want to be such a professional. Hey, we're just, these are all professional notes, by the way, like this character is an argument for abortion. You lost me. I'm sorry, look, but you're, but you know, you've you got to you got to understand. Are, those are, those are comments that came after all his previous suggestions uh, oh, being no. either ignored or, or, uh, just thrown out. Oh, so basically his response is, I'm going to keep giving the same note over and over again. Again, like it's the kind of thing that you want to lock somebody in the attic for. You, it doesn't mean that Harv, was Harv wasn't wrong um, to go back and take a look at some of those issues and go through them and do them. But, like, but how Gene presented those notes, just it tells me a lot. It tells me a whole lot about how things went down. Because I imagine that some of those issues he was talking about, he probably presented to Nick Meyer. Right. You, you, yeah, absolutely. Nick's a much you, better writer. <laughs> you got to understand the history there because, you know, uh, Gene and Harv's history goes way back, goes way back to when Gene Roddenberry was producing The Long Hunt of April Savage in 67, I think wow. it was, or 65. And Harv Bennett was the ABC network executive and Gene had Harv thrown off the set. Right. Uh, of, of that Bob, that he was producing for, I think it was Sam Peoples, actually. Wow. So uh, he had, and so th there was no love lost between and talk about karma's a bitch. So, um, you know, then after Star Trek, the motion picture, um, the net, you know, the studio basically fires Gene and replaces him with Harv Bennett, the man that he threw off the set you know, 30, well, not 30 yeah. years, 10, 10, 10, 15 years earlier. Yeah. So it, it's, it's pretty, uh, extraordinary when you look mm -hmm. at the history these two had. So there was no no love lost between them to begin with. And then you have, you know, Gene, who
who's desperately trying to claw on the power and hold on to his creation, you know, who after Star Trek, the motion picture is, is basically shown He's been the marginalized. Door. Right. Yeah. I mean, and then he writes his Star Trek two treatment that the studio has no interest in, 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 in um, producing. And then Star Trek two is a huge hit when the whole time Gene's going to say, it's going to be a disaster. You can't kill Spock. Right. And, 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 and so by the time Star Trek three, this is the world of Star Trek three that we're entering with these notes. This, that's the backstory. Right. Right. And it's interesting that, uh, 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 Nick Meyer himself in his, uh, you know, uh, notes from the bridge. Is that the name of his, his book? A view from the bridge. View, view from, from the bridge. bridge. Um, view to a kill from the bridge. He uh, specifically says that he was wrong in, uh, in the way that he interacted with Roddenberry. Um, yeah. He, that, that is one of his, uh, his regrets from the whole thing that uh, he, he says he, he should have, he should have listened more and not, just uh, uh, thrown out uh, the suggestions that were. He, he said he should have. Today we take care of all company business. No, <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he never said that. But yeah, I mean, to, to, to Nick's credit, when he looks back, he was young and he was petulant and he was yeah. egotistical and he was under a lot of pressure. Absolutely. And so he had no time for GR's bullshit, you know. And he was brilliant but, and delivered, which and I think is the difference between him and Harv. Harv was not brilliant and did not deliver. It's so interesting. And I don't think we'll have an answer to this. Had Bob Salen oh my produced God. Star Trek three, yeah. what that movie would have looked like. He would have hired a real writer. He would have hired a real writer yep. and he, it would have probably looked a lot better. It yep. would have been produced. You know, he would have he helped Leonard a lot more. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we've, we've talked to Bob about, you know, coming on the show to talk about what he would have done with Star Trek three. And, you know, to his credit, even though he was kind of screwed over by Harv and they were old friends, he won't, he won't speak ill of him. Yeah. After everything that happened, he still doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't want to do it. I mean, uh, I, I, you got to give him credit. He's you a know, class as much as we want him to. Yeah, as, much, <laughs> as much as we want him to. Bob like, is a classy a mofo. So, we love Bob. Yeah. We do. We absolutely love Bob. We, we really do. <laughs> <laughs> now, Bob, I'm, it's one of the joys of the show. We always talk about why do we do the show? I mean, we've been doing it for three years, going on four years almost. And it's like because we get to meet people like Bob Salen, who we can all now consider a friend, you know. So, um, you know, the show is the gift that keeps on giving in, in so many ways. I mean, you know, we were all. Uh, well, some of us, I mean, we were teenagers, but you were less than a teenager when Ashley, when, when Star Trek two came out, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, the, and they say never meet your idols, but you know, I, I, you know, we've been fortunate enough to meet so many of our idols in our career and it, it more often than not, it's turned out to be a wonderful thing. Yeah. Much more. So often anyway, than how wonderful has this episode be, been? Right. <laughs> it's been great. I, I get, hope I, I have hope. to get my tenses. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. I, I hope, I hope, I hope the audience will agree. I, I definitely think it was fascinating. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and we're so appreciative to Gene coming down. Uh, to, <laughs> well, to, to, and uh, Gary Nardino. And Gary Nardino, yeah. <laughs> and Gary, and Gary. We'll have to have Gary back on the show one of these days. <laughs> and, and Don Barzini. <laughs> when, we do, when we do the uh, Time Tracks episode in season eight. <laughs> um, 
Um, anyway, uh, but this was great. And Ashley was so preachy. Ashley was traveling all day. Uh, he, he's been, you know, connecting on flights and running around. And so for you to be able to make it down to the show today, we really, uh, we really appreciate it. Um, and we're excited that you'll be joining us in Las Vegas in August at the, uh, at the creation show. Damn right. And, um, so, uh, we'll have, uh, we'll have the Trexperts and the honorary Trexpert there and he'll <laughs> be talking cartoon barroom. That's right. The, the new podcast from him and Steve Melching. And if you haven't checked it out, you should really, uh, um, go wherever uh, you listen to podcasts, listen to Cartoon Barroom. They've had some amazing guests on the show recently and will continue to. So uh, check out Cartoon Barroom as well as on the Electric Now app where you can watch Cartoon Barroom as well as Inglorious Trexperts. And if you like audio commentaries, you should check out the Trexperts Briefing Room where Darren and I are joined by special guests as we do audio commentaries on significant episodes of the Star Trek oeuvre. Also, uh, the 430 movie where we curate fantasy theme weeks of classic films and the great best movies never made with Josh Miller and Steven Scarlatta. Always fascinating. Always a good time. So um, we want to thank uh, the great Bill Ritter and Mark Rivera for making us sound so good, even over Zoom. And of course, our associate producers, Peter Holmstrom and Zach Raggetts and producer Natalie Miscali. And uh, Dylan Middlebrook uh, for uh, everything they do for the show. It takes a village, my friends. And uh, I'm, I'd like to thank my garage for having those notes. Um, uh, I was able to finally find where they were squirreled away. And, uh, you know, for low these many years. And we were able to do this long, oft-promised episode of the Trexperts, and it was really interesting. And I once want to reiterate to whoever that was on Twitter who said Star Trek Three is a masterpiece. Stop sniffing glue. So, um, <laughs> um, but uh, but this was great, and I'm looking forward to seeing everybody next Friday back on the Trexperts, and in August at the Rio Hotel and Suites for the Creation Entertainment 55 Year Mission Tour where we'll be joining over a hundred fantastic guests from across the Star Trek universe to talk about our favorite subject, algebra. No, our favorite subject, Trek. Um, And uh, until then, we say keep on trekking and gloriously, of course. And remember, don't talk about Genesis. No one talks about Genesis. We don't talk about it. It's a forbidden subject. Genesis? This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.